Our Father in heaven, dear Lord, we thank you and we rejoice for everything we've already been able to participate in here today. It's been good to sing. It's been good to pray. It's been good to break the bread and drink the cup and to worship, to worship you and thank you and praise you. And we continue in that same spirit of worship now as we listen to what you might teach us from your word. I pray that you, God, the Holy Spirit, would be at work in the heart of each one of my friends here today and in myself. I pray that you would help me to speak the things that I know through the week you have shown me. Help me to speak clearly, Lord God, and, and, but let me not be the issue here today. Let it be what you teach in your word. Edify, I pray, the souls of your children. And if anyone is here, Lord, who hasn't yet come to faith in Christ, Lord, you just like we showed through your supper, you did all the work. You did everything that was required for a person to have their sins forgiven. The one thing that you don't do is believe for us. You call us to faith. And I pray if anyone's here today who needs to be saved, Lord God, that they would believe on you, that they would trust in you, that you would draw them to yourself, and that they would trust in you and receive your salvation. Thank you, Lord. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let me read for you, uh, just to set a tiny bit of context before I read it. As you know, as we've gone through Matthew chapter 17 so far, what we've seen are uh, an account of some events that are recorded also in uh, Mark and in Luke. This little passage of Scripture today actually appears only in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, in the uh, account, what you'll see is it starts off by saying that they came to Capernaum. Mark also re records that they uh, arrive at Capernaum. Luke doesn't even include that detail. And then you have this incident where some people ask the Lord, actually ask Peter about the tax, which we understand to be the temple tax. And... Uh, Mark and Luke do not record that. They all just jump right to what is in the beginning of Matthew chapter 18, which is that dispute that the disciples have about who is the greatest. So we'll come to that next week. But here we have this particular event that is only recorded in our Bibles here and still, though, has, though a short passage of Scripture, has plenty of points in it that are for our instruction and edification. Praise the Lord. God bless you. So... Uh, Let's read. And let me make sure I'm in the right place. Okay. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. 
And you might read that and you might think, what's going on there? And what can we learn from it? Well, there's quite a few things in here. I've, I've actually picked out for you what I think are four very distinct lessons that are important that come through this passage of Scripture. And before I say that, what you see here is they come into Galilee and what's waiting for them is people who are collecting the tax. The tax is the temple tax. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute, but once each year, as prescribed in the law of Moses, every male uh, above the age of 20 up to, I think, maybe age 60, uh, had to give a half shekel tax that was devoted, by this time certainly understood, to be devoted to the support of the temple in Jerusalem and all of the ministry that happened in the temple. And I was curious to know what sort of a financial obligation that would be. And so I tried a crude method of making it relevant for us because um, perhaps the concept of a half shekel 2,000 years ago isn't something that an American can immediately identify with. So quick Google search uh, determined that the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics says that throughout the country, and this varies for region by region and career by career, etc., but the average wage, the average annual salary of an American worker is, is a 44000 and change, a little, a little below $45,000 a year. That's the national average for the American worker. And I, what I did then is I kind of took that and did a little math and uh, uh, figured out that uh, a two days wage if you took that and divided it out by 52 weeks and then divided that, here's the process for you. I have a little math geek in me, not too much, but a tiny bit. So I divided it all by 52 to get the weekly number. And then I divided it by six because the Jewish work week would be six days taking off on the Sabbath, right? And so, and then what a half shekel was, I know from doing some reading in that time, was about two days wages. So after dividing it by six and getting what a day's wage was, what did I do? I multiplied it by two, and I came up with a little under $300 there. So now you have something you can relate to. For the average American, once a year, you had to give up $300 just to support the temple. And then I thought about it, and I said, I wouldn't mind moving there because I give up a lot more than $300 every year in taxes, and you probably do too, right? But there were probably other taxes. They paid taxes to the Romans. There were issues of tithes and offerings and uh, things they paid to the synagogue and everything else. But this specifically was the temple tax. So once a year, once a year, a little under $300 about would be the way that you could think about it today. So they come to Galilee and those who receive the temple tax are there. And they come to Peter and they say to Peter, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? All right, And Peter responds with yes. And I fooled that around with that even a little bit in my mind because you could make the case when Peter says yes that he means yes or he says yes because he means no because you sort of have like the double negative there. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Uh, does he not pay the tax? Uh, yes. Does yes mean he does not pay the temple tax? Or I guess in strict English, yes would mean he does not pay the temple tax. But I think what, what Peter meant was, yes, he does. All right? So, yes, he does. Oh, I'm going with that anyway. 
because he does after this. So that would presumably be what he meant. So Peter says, yes, he pays the temple tax. Now, um, the first thing that comes out of this that I think is important to see is how Jesus very skillfully reveals who he is, doesn't he? He reveals that he's the son of God. Listen, there are good teachers, there are great teachers, and then there's Jesus, right? (laughs) In a class all by himself. What happens is it says that Jesus anticipated, of course, you know, Jesus was always doing that before Peter could get a word out of his mouth. Hey, uh, and right before he says a thing, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And, you know, perhaps as an American, we don't relate too much to the concept of a king. However, we can certainly take a look at it and certainly study it easy enough from here. Do you think a king taxes his own sons? Typically, no, is where it goes. And Peter understood that. Everyone else was taxed, but the sons were sort of exempt from that in most kingdoms. So Jesus uses this to teach Simon something about his identity, right? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter says to him, from strangers. So Jesus says what back? Then the sons are free. What does he mean when he says that? Well, the tax was for the temple, The temple was God's house. The temple in Jerusalem was representative of God's presence on the earth. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of worship of God, the center of the covenant life between God and Israel. It was the place where God chose to put his name. David desired to build God a house. Solomon built that house. Come out on Thursday night and see 2 Chronicles chapter 1, and you'll understand about all that, right? And so here comes someone collecting a tax from Jesus to go to the temple, which is his father's house. And so Jesus cleverly says, you know, who do the kings of the earth take taxes from? Their sons or from strangers? Strangers right? Then the sons are free. In that statement, what is Jesus doing? He's professing to be the son of God, right? Isn't it brilliant? Isn't it awesome, right? He's free. In other words, that's my father's house. I don't have to pay it. If the kings of the earth don't have to, if if the sons of the kings of the earth, the princes of the earth don't have to pay taxes into their father's treasuries, why would they compel me to pay tax into my father's treasury? Well, it obviously shows that the collectors of the tax, as well as the leaders in the temple back in Jerusalem, they're not in Jerusalem at this time, they're in Capernaum, but uh, they certainly didn't recognize who Jesus was, but Jesus just very, very, though indirect, very clearly professed himself to be the Son of God. This whole thing, just so you know where it came from, when Moses was in the wilderness with the children of Israel, one of the laws that God gave him it's in Exodus chapter 13, was that every year, males in this particular age group, once a year, would give this half shekel offering. And all these centuries later, it was still practiced, a half shekel offering. And uh, at the time that Moses issued this command, of course, it wasn't known as the temple tax because there was no temple yet. But if you read in, 
oh, by coincidence, 2 Chronicles, another plug for 2 Chronicles. If you read in 2 Chronicles later in the book, under the reign of King Josiah, very great king in Israel, leading up to King Josiah's reign, the temple had fallen into terrible disrepair and the worship of God had been completely set aside and had decayed in favor of worshiping all sorts of other gods. And there were high places and statues and monuments all over the nation. And when Josiah became king, Josiah very zealously uh, put out all of that idolatry out of the land. And I wish I had time to lay all that out now. I don't. But uh, one of the things that Josiah did is he reinstituted this tax. And the specific purpose for this tax was to fix the temple because God's house had fallen into a state of disrepair. And Josiah did that, and God was very pleased. And from that time all the way into Jesus' time, this tax that had come up was then known as the tax for the temple or the temple tax. And so here are people coming into Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, but Capernaum, all these years later, looking to collect the temple tax from Jesus. All right? So the first point that you see in all of this is that Jesus uses the opportunity to reveal who he is. He is the Son of God, and the temple was his house. Let me make one application for us. Ready? Listen. God does not dwell in temples made with men's hands. Our understanding in the new covenant is that we are the temple of God. He dwells in us. And just as the Lord at that temple deserved all of his glory and all of his worship for this offering was an act of worship, so in our lives, does the Son of God deserve worship and honor and glory always in everything, in your thoughts, in your prayers, in your priorities, in in the things that you do, in the things that you say. We are God's house and we must live as offerings unto Him and worship Him. And you think to yourself, I'm dry, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, Listen, sure you are, and we all have seasons where we do that, but I want you to know God is for you in this. God wants to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Worship the Lord daily. Pray to Him all the time. Read and meditate on His Word. Don't make all of that into a big mountain. Just get up in the morning and devote yourself to God that day. Walk with God throughout that day, and when you go to bed, get up the next morning if He gives it to you and do it again. By faith, by faith, by faith, keep walking with the Son of God. We are His house, and He lives in us. Number two, the second thing I think that you see in this passage of Scripture is a particular, maybe attitude, uh, uh, maybe a bit of incredulity in Jesus concerning the kings of the earth, right? So in addition to revealing himself, the fact that Jesus says, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs, from their sons or from strangers? It's hard to not read into that. Cynicism is too strong of a word, but perhaps a a little bit of a dig, maybe a little bit of rebuke at the hypocrisy of the kings of the earth 
and of the blindness of the kings of the earth as he says that because he's pointing out that like, you know, the kings of the earth, they exempt their sons from, from, from paying the tax, you know, or from paying taxes in their own kingdoms because they show favoritism to their sons, uh, a lot of nepotism in, the, in the, tip, uh, the typical kingdom of the world, right, at the time. There are other places in Scripture where that happens, as I thought about it. And I just happened to find myself reading in Psalm 2 this week. And I want to show you something that I think is pretty interesting, because that phrase, kings of the earth, comes up there. Turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, the ones that Jesus was just asking uh, Peter about, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed is Jesus. His anointed is the Messiah. So you would understand why Jesus might have a little bit of skepticism or cynicism or a little bit of rebuke towards the kings of the earth because this is a messianic psalm and it speaks of the kings of the earth raging against the Lord's anointed whom Jesus is, against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. In other words, we don't need our creator and we don't need his mercy that comes through his anointed one. You know what God's reaction to that is? Laughter. You don't believe it? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. So it's a derisive laugh. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Listen to this. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, that's, that's as, if, as if Messiah himself were speaking it. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, you know what's interesting about that statement? I thought about it a little more where the Messiah says that the father says to him, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. First of all, it points out that not just the temple in Jerusalem belongs to the Son of God, but all creation belongs to the Son of God, right? Hallelujah. But there's one other little interesting place that my mind went with this that I want you to see. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. Back to Matthew, not quite to chapter 17. Back up a little bit. Go to Matthew chapter 4. And you know the passage of Scripture where Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil? This really blew me away this week. Well, in the end of that passage, in verse 8, it says that the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And, you know, Jesus, of course, responds by saying, get out of here. Away with you, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left. 
But you know what must have motivated Jesus inside was also, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but in time, in the plan of God, God has given a certain authority to Satan over the world. But what does it say? You have Satan here tempting Jesus and saying, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. But what had God the Father already said to the Messiah, to his son? Ask of me and I'll give you all the nations of the world as your inheritance. So one of the things about that temptation that is just so askew and so offensive is that Satan was offering something to Jesus that God had already offered to Jesus. So what's the difference? What's the difference? Satan offered all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus in a moment's time, immediately. Take the cheap, quick, wrong way out and worship me right now and all the kingdoms of the world are yours. God says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations. But what did Jesus have to go through first? He had to go, he had to go through what he went through when he came here to earth, right? So there was nothing quick and cheap about the way that Jesus did it. And there's a lesson for us in that, isn't there? When it comes to faith, when it comes to faith, we are in it for the long haul. We have difficulties and trials that come up in our lives. And sometimes the temptation that comes to us is to take some quick, easy way out of it. You know, some of, it, some of us are better at it than others, perhaps, but all of us, all of us, myself included, have the capacity to be sinful, to be manipulative, to practice evil in order to make our own way in the world. Jesus was offered that opportunity. Worship me and it's all yours. You can do that too. Tell this lie. Defame this person. Steal this thing. Undermine that thing. You know? And get your way. The way of the Christian is what? Trust God and wait and wait on him. You know, I was thinking about, I was thinking this week about, you hear me all the time talking about getting our minds off of this world and on God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And I was thinking about that amazing statement of Jesus where he says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Listen to this. This, I found this so profound and insightful from the Lord this week. He says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Think about it. When we labor through this life trying to strive for what Satan offered Jesus, you can have it all. Just compromise and worship me. You can have it all. You know? When we go through life just striving to make it easy and get our own way in life, guess what happens? Our hearts are earthbound and stuck here because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He does not say the intuitive where your, uh, where your heart is, that's where you'll put your treasure. What he says is where your treasure is, there's where your heart will be. Therefore, lay up treasures in heaven. Don't go through life striving to take the short, quick, easy way through life. Go through life in faith, walking in humility and impatience, in, in patience, bearing hardship, enduring through difficulty, bearing one another's burdens and encouraging one another and praying for one another. But walk through life patiently waiting on God 
who in the end will deliver you. In the end, in the end, in the end. And as you live and walk by faith and not by sight, as you live and walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, as you devote yourself to serving God and not just kicking and scratching and clawing without any conscience or or any regard for anything else just to get your own way in the world, if you walk in humility before God, you will be laying up treasures for yourself in heaven. And you know what you'll find? Even as you walk day by day here, your heart will be there. And when your heart is there, listen, you can face anything. When your heart is on the kingdom of God, when your heart is not bound up in this world, but your heart is all wrapped up where Jesus reigns, there's nothing in this world you can't face with him. Right? I want to encur- I was so encouraged by that this week. And I want to encourage you with that. Jesus is in Capernaum and he comes and it's like they're collecting the temple tax from him and right away he's like, Kings of the earth don't take taxes from their own sons. Why should God my father take tax from me? I'm his son. Oh, the kings of the earth. Oh, the kings of the earth. Oh, the kings of the earth. How they rage against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his anointed. But there is Jesus counteracting it all with wisdom and passing that wisdom along to us. Third point in Matthew chapter 17. What else do you see? I, I think perhaps I think perhaps the main thing, if there is a main thing that jumps out about this passage, it is this. It is that he says in verse 27, after making the point about the sons of the earth, after making the point uh, about his own identity being the son of God, which is itself extremely significant, then he says in verse 27, nevertheless, When he says, nevertheless, what is he doing? Even though what I have said to you is true, that as the Son of God, I don't owe this tax. Nevertheless. In other words, instead. In other words, there is another route. There is another path. There is another way we're going to walk. We're going to be governed by something different. There's so much lessons in the, so many lessons just in this one point itself where Jesus says, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in the hook, and take the fish that comes up first. It's one of those, it's one of those Jesus moments that only Jesus would do, done, do it done Jesus' way, you know. And when you've opened its mouth, you'll find a stator, a Greek coin that is, roughly the equivalent of an entire shekel in that time, which would be one single coin that would cover the entire half shekel tax for two people. So go find this Greek coin about the fir- in the mouth of the first fish that you take it out and take it and give it to them for me and for you. So this lest we offend them. So even though Jesus, listen, even though Jesus had a right as the Son of God to not be taxed, Something was more important to him than his own right. Can you relate to that? If you can't, you need to learn some things more about Christianity. There's a few lessons in all of this. What Jesus cares more about is the testimony of his ministry. He wants to be a good testimony. 
Paying taxes is hard. I'll be perfectly honest with you without going into too much detail, but in 2019, my family had a real hard time for various reasons keeping up with taxes that need to be paid as well as some other things. We're doing better now. But taxes can be hard and they can be a burden and they can cause you to say things. They can cause you to be angry. They can cause you to be frustrated. Aside from taxes, there are other civic, civil responsibilities that as citizens we have. There are laws of the land that we are called to obey. There is a certain level of conduct that we are expected as citizens to maintain, a certain level of decorum and decency and honor and reverence towards the culture that we live in. We as Christians should not be known as angry, as complainers, as mouthy, as cheeky. We as Christians should be known as peaceful. We should be known as contentedness. We should be known as Christ-like. We should be known as people who love one another. We should be known as people who bear trials. We should be known as people who recognize that even though their citizenship is not here, they're in heaven, they're going to walk as sojourners and as ambassadors here in this world in order and in peace. And they're going to be the safest people in the world that anybody in the world would want to be around towards each other and towards the entire world. So extreme are Christians in this commitment that they even love their enemies. People use them and spite them. And you know what Christians do? They pray for them because their Lord said to. There are people that when they're wronged, they forgive because they know God has forgiven them probably more than they're being asked to forgive. Lest we offend them, go get the fish, take out the coin, and pay it for both of us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, please. I love how it works out that the disciple that Jesus is going through this encounter with is Peter. Because Peter wrote some stuff in his own letters. Here's two particular spots that I want you to see in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter got it. Peter elaborated on it. And now we get to read it. Thank the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Beloved. I love it when paragraphs start with the word beloved. Paul does that a lot, but here Peter does it. But when a paragraph starts with beloved, not only is it touching and familial and and reminds us of the love among Christians, but there is a very sincere emphasis being placed on what he says. Like if I come to you and I say something to you that I think is important, it's one thing. But if I come to you and I say, and I maybe walk right up to you and I say, beloved brother, there's just something that's extra powerful about that. In a literary sense, I believe it to be true as well. Beloved, I beg you. Look at that, beloved and then beg. Pretty 
strong emphasis. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Sojourners are people who hang out somewhere even though they don't belong there. Pilgrims are people who are away on a trip. That's what you are. That's what we are. Sojourners and pilgrims. What are you going to do as a sojourner and a pilgrim? There's a news story this week where um, an airman from another country, from Saudi Arabia, just happened within the last couple of days. He's living in another country. He's living in America, and he shot up a bunch of people, right, in Pensacola, right, is where that happened, right? How do you think, how do you think as people who are not citizens of this world or the United States or anything, I mean, we're legally American citizens, but in Christ, we're citizens of his kingdom. How do you think Christ wants us to live? Agitating like that? Fighting like that? Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Gentiles there being used to describe the world. You're the church. There's the world. We're here to reach the world. We're here to represent Christ to the world. We're here to be used of Christ to pull other people out of the world and into his kingdom. So you're not saved by good works, but as a Christian, your life ought to be filled with them. Because when they speak evil against you, they believe God created the heavens and the earth. They're against, they don't believe this. They, they believe the Bible. They believe there's one God. They believe, they believe all these silly things that they believe. The silly songs that they sing and, and the silly, oh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works because they see how you live. They see how you conduct yourself. What? Glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation, that phrase, some think, refers to something future prophetically. I I actually think more it refers to the fact that God is visiting them by their encounter with you. You are his ambassador. And when you are encountering someone of the world, they're not just encountering you, they're encountering God. That's how it's supposed to be. That's the plan. That's the design. When, you, when someone encounters one of Christ's children, they're supposed to be encountering Christ. And they do, not just by what you say, but by how you act and by what you do. And that's why he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul because you're pilgrims and sojourners here. You're not citizens here. Hey, listen, if this is your home and this is all it is, go for it. Go after every lust you want. But if you really are a citizen of heaven because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then recognize you're just a sojourner or a pilgrim here and abstain from the fleshly lusts that war against your own soul so that when people accuse you of, ah, Christians this, ah, Christians that, they'll be silenced in their criticism by the works that you do and be caused actually to glorify God When they encounter you, that's their day of visitation. It's Jesus saying, let your uh, uh, light show sign before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven from the Sermon on the Mount. Same book, 1 Peter, turn to chapter 3. Go to the next chapter. and, And look what else Peter wrote. 
he, he, he elaborated on this, so important it is. In chapter 3 and verse 8, as he's bringing the letter to a close, he says, finally, all of you be of one mind. Look, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. This isn't optional. This isn't for someone else. This isn't, this isn't for you to look at and then scorn it by saying, well, I can't do that. Thank God for his grace. These are words that are said to people who have been saved by his grace. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing. Right? And I would point out to you that whereas the first passage of Scripture I read spoke of our standing before the world, Peter here seems to be speaking of our standing towards one another as he speaks of brethren, right? We're supposed to act as brethren. If you go ahead to uh, verse 13 in the same passage, it says, and he, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Why would anyone who's a Christian fight against the concept of good works? Unless the concept of good works is being put forth as a way to save yourself, then you fight against it. But as far as like being people who are saved by grace and understand that we don't impress God with anything good that we do, we're utterly dependent on his grace, well, then how do I live my life? Well, what harm is it if you become followers of good? It says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer, a defense to the one who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, when they defame you, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be what? Ashamed. Because they, they, they revile you, they speak against you, but when they see how you act, it's something different. Yeah. Go back to... Uh, Matthew chapter 17. Let me say one more thing and bring this to a close. I want you to... Uh, so, so first thing we saw is that Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God through the temple tax, through what he taught to Peter. Second thing that we saw was this attitude toward the kings of the earth, right? And the third thing we've seen is that Jesus cared about not arbitrarily being offensive, even though he made the case that he had every right not to pay the tax. Let's pay it because I don't want to offend them because much more important to me is that they'll actually be sitting and listening to the word of the gospel, the words that I'm trying to teach, rather than sitting there and being offended because I'm claiming that I don't have to pay the temple tax because I'm the son of God. I will waive that right even though every son, every prince, and every kingdom in the world is exempt from taxes, I'll pay it because I don't want anyone to be offended. I want them to listen to the gospel. And you and I are supposed to live as Christians guided by that. I, written, I, I don't have time to elaborate on it, but I, I had written down, uh, it's an example of wisdom in choosing your battles, isn't it? Isn't it? What do, you, what do you really want to fight over? You really want to fight over politics? You really want to fight over... Uh, you know, all the things in the world that people fight over and dig their heels in over and get mad. You really, as a Christian, that's what you want to be identified by? I want to be identified by my conduct before Christ, who I claim to be my Lord and Savior. I want people to know that I love Jesus 
and I want them, even if they hate Jesus, even if they mock and hate Christianity and mock and hate the Bible, I want them to look at me and have to say, have to say, there must be something to that because look at him. I don't say that with any, listen, I hope you know me well enough to know that I'm not saying that because I have any inclination that I think I can make any good impression on anyone, let alone on God. I know that in me no good thing dwells. I know that. I know that I am utterly filthy and dependent upon his grace. But as I live, having been a recipient of that grace, I want my conduct to represent Jesus and that grace. So that when I go to someone and tell them about the grace of God in Christ, they don't see some obnoxious, maniacal fool who's angry and bitter and complaining and, and you know, drunk and, 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 and filled up with lust for the things of this world. And I, I want them, look, I know I can't perfect myself, but I want them to see someone who doesn't just say he loves Jesus, but you can tell by what he does with his life that he actually does. That's what Jesus says. That's what Peter says. Paul says it. The Bible says it. Isn't that what we want? Step back. Please step back from yourself and look at your life and the battles you choose and the things you dig your heels in over and ask, what is this saying to the world about Jesus? Why do you care about anything else? Have you not been overwhelmed and blown away by his grace and by his mercy and by his promise of salvation? You have stuff that's more important than that to fight over. No, you don't. Let me tell you right now that you don't, but maybe you don't realize it. Step back from yourself and realize what matters is he saved me and now I'm his ambassador. The last little lesson in this, it's a minor lesson maybe, but with huge implications, is you see his will, you see his ability to provide. Simple, right? Commit your ways to him. Walk in righteousness. Walk in moderation. Walk in wisdom. Be a good steward of whatever he provides for you. Give us this day our daily bread. Having food and shelter, we will be content with these. These are all teachings of Jesus. My God shall provide all of your riches and glory. Uh, My God shall provide all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Paul said to the Philippians. Peter, go catch a fish. First one you catch, open its mouth, and there will be a stator inside, the Greek coin. Take the coin out and go pay the tax for me and for you. And for you, Peter. Peter, I'm going to spot you your tax this year. Even though I don't have to pay it, I'm going to pay it for myself and I'm going to pay it for you too. Devote. Peter was a man who was devoted to following and serving the Lord and the Lord took care of him. Devote yourself to following and serving the Lord and I know that he will take care of you. Jed, Amy, come on back up and lead us in our last hymn.